Well, welcome to this platform, which is our second annual question platform. I've been asking for questions over the last few months and have gotten more than I will be able to answer today. And, um, and I really look forward to this chance to share some of my thoughts with you, but even more than that, I love knowing what is on all of your minds. So I encourage you to think what questions this still brings up for you and to save them for next year, potentially, or just ask me in coffee hour sometime. So thank you. There's not, there hasn't been a real theme to the questions this year. I think last year they followed an arc. So we're just bouncing around. And the, the first question was, for me, excellent timing. Someone wrote in saying, in the musical Avenue Q, there's a song, Everyone's a Little Bit Racist. I wonder if you could comment on that thought and the difficulty of always living up to our ideal way of thinking. I say good timing because I actually just saw Avenue Q with Peter, my husband. It was one of our date nights in August. And, um, and this was, was actually one of my favorite songs in the musical. For folks who haven't seen it, Avenue Q is puppets, um, but sort of... Uh, you know, puppets gone wild, I'm not sure. The puppets live out the repressed versions of ourselves. So there's a great song called uh, Schadenfreude about the pleasure that we, that we receive when people we envy fall and do poorly in life. And, um, and so it's really kind of exploring these um, topics that we don't talk about. And, and so for me, the song, Everyone's a Little Bit Racist, was, was actually right in that, those lines. You know, race and racism are things that our country still really struggles to talk about, that I think um, get to scars that feel so deeply painful that it's sometimes appealing to pretend that it doesn't exist around us, particularly, I would say, those of us in progressive circles. I was raised in sort of a school environment that encouraged colorblindness, that said, you know, oh, well, we're all different, but really we're the same inside. And that encouraged us to think of ourselves as really being post-racist. And, um, and for me, that's a destructive framework because I think the reality is that we live in a society where racism is so much part of the water, it would be... Um, miraculous if any of us had really escaped. So the thing I liked about this song, which was presented by a few little puppets and then some uh, non-puppet characters as well, is that it got the audience thinking, laughing, talking about something that we too frequently try to push beneath the surface. I, I've done some anti-racism work particularly within the Unitarian Universalist Association's framework. And I think one of the things I've appreciated about it is the acknowledgement of systemic racism, the acknowledgement that we have experienced this from children and that, uh, of course, this would be part of our experience of the world. And so instead of getting us stuck in guilt, which is a singularly unproductive emotion, 
it allows us to say, well, here's what the world is like around us. What I want to do is change that world. So that there's, an, there's an acknowledgement of personal responsibility. There's conversation about personal prejudice. But there's also an opening to that idea of racism as being personal prejudice combined with power. That racism is about the whole system, the whole culture, and an attempt to address it. And so I think even when we have these kind of lighthearted attempts, it's a, it's a way of bringing us into that difficult conversation, which I think is a conversation that our country really needs to have and to continue having. I think, too, on the broader level, there is, you know, the, the song speaks to that experience that we have in a lot of places in our life where we are never exactly who we hope to be. As much as we try, as much as we may get better as we examine ourselves, we are never quite who we wish we were. This is actually one of the three spiritual pains that Felix Adler, the founder of Ethical Culture, spoke about, this, uh, the disparity between who we wish we were in the world and who we find ourselves being. And I think that that's a reality. And for many of us, coming to a religious community is a way to address that disparity, a way to be in community with each other and to say, I failed, but I want to do better. And I want this community to help challenge me to do better, to support me when I fail, to support me when I succeed as well. So that, for me, is the bigger picture, the way that we are not always what we wish we were. So then, on a completely different subject, the second question is, how do you envision the specific roles of each element of the Sunday morning platform, and how do you see those elements interacting to produce an overall experience? I loved this question. <laughs> you know, Mary and I do have a plan in mind when we put together Sunday morning. <laughs> And I love, I love the implicit acknowledgement that we must, in fact, that we're not just up here putting things together in some way that, you know. This is actually something that I studied in seminary at some length, the idea of an arc of a platform service, an arc of a service together, that you want people to come through the door and then enter into a shared experience on Sunday morning to have an emotional experience that rises and falls, that will be individual, of course, with each person, affected by where each person is in their life, but that also creates this kind of shared communal experience. And for me, that's one of the reasons why coming on Sunday morning is so important to the life of a religious community, as a member of a community, to be part of that experience each week, because it allows you to travel through with people. I think sometimes when you miss a number of weeks in a row, you come in and realize people have been having this kind of shared conversation with each other that you haven't gotten to be part of, so you need to sort of catch up to get there. So here we go, Sunday morning in a nutshell. We start with opening words, which bring people into the room and provide, I think, a kind of centering. I always try to be really aware that people come on Sunday morning with all kinds of experiences in the week that they've just had. People have joyful, wonderful weeks. People have very painful and difficult weeks and still come together on Sunday. And so often with my words, on my opening words, I try to welcome people in no matter what experience they've been having and to then begin to create the idea that together we're having a shared experience.
We also use those opening words often to welcome new people into the room. And so I might acknowledge on some Sundays that some people have been coming here for many years, and for some people it's their first time walking through the door. It's an attempt to bring us together while acknowledging that apartness. We then go into opening music, which is in some ways the act of coming together, just as we've been sort of talking about that in opening words. When we sing together, and often opening music is a shared singing piece here, we come together in reality, joining our voices together in song. Opening music is often, as it was this Sunday, an attempt to begin to introduce the theme as well of the day. So we, this, mor- this morning, started by singing a song about questions because we're asking and answering questions together today. We then have the candle lighting, which is a chance to acknowledge individuals in our community, to give a sense of who we are and what we're about. So there's this dual purpose, I think, of really acknowledging that, that person, acknowledging something that they've done that has been exciting or interesting in the community, but also giving a little flavor to new people of who, what it is that we, that we hold up, what it is that we acknowledge. So, so welcoming people in. And then as we recite the candle lighting words together, that's another chance to come together and state our values again each Sunday, what it is that brings us together, what's at the core of our being here. So then we have the welcome and announcements. Welcome, of course, introduces new people to our community, welcomes them in. And announcements, announcements are really, (laughs) Mary's laughing because we have lots of conversations about where to put them. Announcements are, I would say, the bane of every service creator's existence. The Unitarian Universalist Association actually did a study a couple of years back of similarities in Sunday morning services across UU congregations. And for those of you who are not familiar with Unitarian Universalism, there's a wide variety among different congregations. They wanted to know, were people singing the same songs? Were they using the same words? Well, the main consistency across the services was that everybody had announcements. I'm not sure what that says theologically, but there it is. That, I mean, that was written. I have the report in my office. I can show it to you. That was, the, that was it. It's tricky to figure out where to put announcements in a service because in some ways they can interrupt the flow of this sort of space that you've started creating but you really need people to get the information. We've talked about putting them at the very beginning. We've talked about putting them at the very end. So we have them sort of somewhere in the middle so that we've created a sense of being together. And ideally, those announcements are then invitations to join in to the life of our community, to get involved in the life. And they are essential. They are the way that people find out about what's coming up. We follow those announcements then with a greeting of each other, which you know is, is always one of the most lively parts of our Sunday morning, I think. And Mary and I often struggle with getting your attention when you are still greeting each other and it's time to move on to the next part of the platform service. The greeting is a way of really kind of building that energy, obviously of making connections between people. I notice many of you with white name tags who reach out every Sunday to say hello to people with blue name tags to our visitors. And I'm always so, um, so pleased and proud that you do that. And that's part of what that greeting is about. 
It is, and, and I think coming after announcements, it creates that kind of energy that announcements can sometimes, you know, get you sort of settled comfortably in your seat just listening. You then have a chance to really actively engage. After announcements, we go into meditation, which is, for me, a chance to then capture that buzz that all of this greeting created and use it to sort of harness it into a more silent and sacred moment. For me, there is something really particular and almost magical about being quiet, being silent in a room of other people being quiet. You know, we are not the only religious tradition to do this, obviously. It's a core part of many religious practices. And so that's what we do with our meditation, that chance to be quiet with each other is almost in some ways a, a more powerful communal experience even than being noisy with each other, which I think we're really good at. The meditation also does introduce often the theme of the platform or bring it in another way. And so frequently Mary or I will ask you to think about something in the meditation that we're then, will then help prepare you to hear some of the words of the platform. The meditation music which follows the meditation is for me actually often one of the most moving parts of our platform service, possibly partly because I'm never in charge of it. So it's one of the places where I get to just sit and really receive. Our meditation music is calmer, quieter, reflective in spirit, that chance to extend the quiet that we had in meditation together and then just experience it through music. As someone who has, I've used music frequently in my own kind of quiet, reflective practice, and so for me, it's a real joy to have that moment. Our platform, then, for me, the best platforms are the beginning of a conversation. They're a chance to open up questions, begin to explore them, imagine different responses, and ideally come up with some conclusion. Although, as some of you know, if you've been around, there are some platforms where I don't reach a conclusion, where what I have are really just more questions. We try very hard when planning our Sunday mornings throughout the year to balance our platforms so that we have a social justice platform followed by a more personal piece, followed by something about congregational life, followed by a philosophical treatise so that we get a little of something for everyone as we go along. And of course, try to speak to what we think is happening in the community at the time so that we're having that shared conversation and the conversation is just the kind of conversation we need to be having. The community, the platform music, sorry, is then a chance to let those platform ideas settle and, um, and is often tied to the theme of the platform address so that there's an extension. One of the things that we talk about, and we experienced this, I think, last week when Chris McCubbin presented using PowerPoint, so using much more visuals than we usually use. We, ex we experience things and information in such different ways, and we try to be aware of that, particularly with music, to give people a chance to resonate with the message, the theme of the day, in different ways. So after the music, we have the community sharing, which is really the continued conversation. I have to tell you something. When we have guest speakers, they are often a little nervous about the community sharing portion. You know, we'll describe it to them ahead of time, and they think, oh, people are going to barrage me with questions or concerns. They're going to say what they didn't like. And I have to tell you that I have been to communities, to congregations, where that 
is what happens in the community sharing period, often called a talk back or a response or even literally a Q&A. I think Wes, and I have to give credit to Mary who really has shaped this over many years, that Wes has done such a phenomenal job of using that time of community sharing to really speak about what resonates for you in the platform address, in the music, in the theme of the day. People share often very personal stories. And for me, it's a chance to hear another layer that maybe I wasn't able to fit in or I hadn't even thought of when crafting my platform. And so it makes that experience richer, I think, certainly for me and I, and I hope for you. Our collection, which follows the community sharing, is a way of living our values of justice. As you all know, we split our collection each month with another group. And it also gives a reflective time to absorb what was heard during community sharing, what people shared in that time. It's one of our challenges is actually creating that quiet reflective space for music during the collection because people are opening their purses and grabbing their wallets and getting out their checkbooks and writing really you know, very large checks, obviously. Um, that's key to that part. Um, People also then sort of get to talking, and do you have a pen, and da, 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 da. And so we've really worked, and it continues to be a challenge to hold the music in a reflective time in that space. So I, I invite you to think about that during the collection and consider sort of how that changes your experience and how quietly you can still write large checks, I guess. <laughs> The closing words, then, are a way to tie the morning together, often reflecting back to the theme. I, I frequently use poetry or words written in a different style than my own in a way to bring in a new voice to the, to the platform service, a voice that I wouldn't be able to bring myself. And then our closing music is another one that we frequently sing together and is a chance for us together to share some of the values that we talked about and in some ways to give ourselves our charge for the week. Our closing music is um, often energizing or kind of pulling us together, so trying to bring our experience of the platform together into a piece before we go off. And then just before we leave, the platform speaker often has a final word, a send-off. This actually started for really practical reasons. In the beginning of my time at West, we had shifted things around, I think, and after the closing music, it became clear that nobody knew that we were done. <laughs> and we would sort of see people looking awkwardly at each other. Are we over? Is there more? I'm not sure. Should we go? And so we talked about needing a final charge, a final, okay, we're done. And so that time really is just a few words, often pulling out some of the words in the, in the closing music to charge people as they go and to let them know that our, our platform service is closed and our community time together is beginning. So that's our Sunday morning. That's what we try to do together. And it changes each week the arc and the energy of the platform service, but those are the pieces that we think about as we work together. There's a lot that goes into particularly getting the music and the words to line up in theme. And that's a particular um, joy of mine and something that, uh, that, that we really like sharing on Sunday morning. Okay, question three. 
Another completely different topic. Some of us have been working, this person writes, on community issues in DC, such as housing, rec centers, and job training with the Washington Interfaith Network. At some point, Wes might like to join the Washington Interfaith Network, but presently they are more the Washington Christian Network than interfaith, which is true. It's all made of churches right now. I know you have been working, this person writes, with some rabbis on these issues. Would you please update us on your work in this area? Well, this, this was also a great question. This is work that's really near and dear to my heart, and it's exciting work. You actually might have had a chance to experience it today. Carithia, one of the members on the community organizing team, has been handing out voter guides for our D.C. residents with where the major, um, uh, major candidates for mayor and city council chair are on Washington Interfaith Network issues like affordable housing and jobs and rec centers for our youth. And there is a challenge for Wes as we work with a network that is overwhelmingly made of Christian churches. I think I see that challenge as really being twofold or maybe even threefold. So it's true that I have been working with rabbis in DC, building relationships and getting folks interested in also being part of the Washington Interfaith Network with the hope that we would not be the integrators all by ourselves, but that we would bring with us others as well who would be able to help us to broaden the base in that community organizing group. I think, too, that that group itself has been doing a lot of good work. I was actually asked to offer a closing, what's usually called a closing prayer, which they changed to be a closing meditation uh, in the spring at a citywide meeting that the mayor and city council chair were present at. And they specifically invited me to offer closing words that would be welcoming to the people of many faiths that were starting to be involved in their organization. So I think that there's a real desire there within the group and the organization to broaden their base and, and figure out how to make that happen. And then I think, too, there's learning for us to do as we continue to be comfortable with language that is different from our own as we learn how to be an interfaith um, in interfaith experiences. You know, I sometimes think about the two ways that you can do interfaith work. And one is to kind of strip language so that you're using language that everybody is comfortable with, right? But unfortunately, that can, that can get to a place where no one is really speaking their full truth because they're all kind of getting down to this lowest level that's acceptable. Another way to do interfaith language, to do interfaith work, and the one that appeals more to me, is for people to speak clearly their own truth and identify it as their truth. And to make sure then that you have a lot of voices at the table, each speaking what is true for them. And I think, my guess is that's where Washington Interfaith Network is going and where they will find the most success. And to me, it's exciting for Wes to be able to kind of be on that ride with them, to be experimenting with them and experiencing that sort of beginning of openness within a really fabulous community-based organizing program in our city. We have a more philosophical question now. All religions that I know about have evolved over time from their simple beginnings. There may even be some principle of evolve or stagnate and die applying to our universe. Some of the evolution seems to be about control, money, political power, or even survival. Since ethical culture, this member writes, has no sacred script or rituals, there is bound to be evolution to reflect our changing society. How can ethical culture remain open to new ideas, 
yet stay true to core values from the teaching of Adler. But this is also an aspect of congregational life that was one that we talked about a lot when I was in seminary. And there was actually a, I don't know if it's a true, but certainly was presented as true, an experience that I think I've talked about here before, that more conservative religious traditions, those that had a clear dogma, were often open to changes in the way that they did things because they, had, they were so sure about what the core values were. While folks that had an openness, had a, um, an openness to value change, an openness to different creeds and different beliefs, sometimes clung actually to their traditions because that's what defined them in some ways. And so I think it's a challenge for ethical culture, for West specifically, but for the movement as a whole, to find a way to articulate our core values enough that change in how we look or the way we do things feels non-threatening, that we know that that kernel is there, that piece of who we are. And so for me, the way to do that is really to make sure that we're saying it over and over again, that we're returning to what it is that makes us who we are, distilling it and clarifying it so that we're sure about what's at our essence, and then therefore sure about what we can be open to, what can evolve and change. Felix Adler actually had a lot of evolution in ethical culture over his lifetime. He spoke, preached, and, and you know, ran the movement for quite a long time. He founded it in 1876 at 24 and didn't stop speaking until he died in 1933. So that's a pretty big span. And there was an evolution in what he thought was acceptable in ethical culture. In the very earliest texts, you'll see him talking about a Sunday morning experience where there's nothing but a man standing up in the front talking. And over time, you see, and he really writes about his evolution of thought. You see him beginning to say, well, it seems like people might need music sometimes. And then you see him say, well, actually, I think people actually need ritual occasionally to mark things in their lives. We need a way to acknowledge marriages and births and deaths. And, and eventually, I know Mary has actually spent time in the Felix Adler archives and has discovered some incredible work at the end, toward the end of his life, really kind of outlining a, a much richer understanding of what would happen in a Sunday morning. So even over that lifetime, we see evolution. And of course, evolution has certainly continued since his death in 1933. I think one of the tricks with having a founder who spoke so prolifically and whose, whose both speeches and writings we have available to us is the temptation to return only to Adler's works. And of course, like any large, large body of works, there is the ability to proof text Adler, right? Proof texting, which is often referred to, we often talk about people proof texting passages in the Bible, where you pluck out a sentence to support your point, and then somebody else who's on the complete opposite side of the argument plucks out another sentence to support their point. And you can do that with Adler's work, actually. You know, you can, you can pluck sentences out to support pretty much whatever you'd like. I think for us, the challenge is to look at his work as the beginning of this sort of evolution of values, as having in it the core of who we are, but knowing that he wanted a religion that was based on human experience, and so being open to our experiences as well as we continue to grow and to change. Okay, the next one 
This is a good one, too. I no longer believe in any continued life after death, writes this person, except perhaps as basic elements to be recycled. A few years back, I spent considerable time sleeping under the stars, and the earth felt a fitting and comforting place to finally return to. Yet sometimes the very physicality of my life fills me with an intense longing for continuity with this existence of my senses. senses. Has evolution tricked us into desiring something we cannot possibly have? Isn't that great? It, it's a great question, and for me, it's a very religious one. The theologian Forrest Church said that religion is our response to the dual difficulty of knowing we are alive and that we have to die, this tension that we hold in our lives. It's a common experience, I think, of the world to feel those two things in great tension. And it's why people have been fascinated by the possibility of life after death throughout history. Just this weekend, actually, I saw an article in the New York Times about the rising belief in reincarnation in America, about the entrance of Eastern religious beliefs, and, and particularly its movement through the psychiatric community. Um, very interesting article, which I recommend to you. One of the quotes in that article, which is from a religion professor, was particularly of interest to me. He said, reincarnation means never having to say you're dead. <laughs> and it's true, right? It gets, it gets exactly to that fear of death, that sort of experience we have of being so excited to be alive and not wanting to let go of that. I'm not going to answer questions on the validity of any of those beliefs. This is not a place where we often answer those questions, although we have many of our own answers. But I do acknowledge that yearning that we have to continue in this existence, just exactly as we know life now, which almost any religious belief would say is not possible. That's, that whatever we believe happens after death, it is not exactly the existence we have now, whether it is an existence or not. To me, the real question here, knowing that we cannot always have this existence that we love so much, is frankly whether life is a tragedy then, whether our life is a continual movement toward the end of what we hold dear. I think often about um, collections. I'm a little bit of a collector, and someone told me once that we collect, again, because we don't want to die, because we feel that if we still don't have that final cloisonné box, we can't possibly go. We still, we'll still find that one before we go. There is the tragic in life. It is tragic that we have an existence that we hold precious that we know will end. But to me, there's a sense of the beautiful that overwhelms the sense of the tragic, at least in my better moments. For me, maintaining a sense of mystery is important and curiosity. A couple of Sundays back, I shared a poem which Barbara Searle brought to me by Mary Oliver about that idea of approaching death with curiosity. And I think that's something I try to experience in my life. 
Then I think I'm going to end with just one more question looking at our time, which is what I have enjoyed or appreciated most during my tenure so far at WES. For those of you who are new to us, I have been at WES now for two years, starting my third. And I think for me, what I have loved most has been Wes's rich liturgical life, the calendar that we follow, the celebrations and the traditions that mean so much to people. Winter Festival, Pay Attention to Love Day, Spring Festival. I've loved experiencing them both through the eyes of people who, like me, are new to them and through the eyes of people who have seen their children who are now having children of their own go through these traditions. And what I have appreciated most is the openness that people have met me with around those traditions, that I have been invited not just to participate and to lead or co-lead with Mary, but to put my own twist occasionally on those traditions and the receptiveness that that has, has been met with in the community. That has been a real gift to me, both to see the traditions that have already been created and to begin to imagine with Mary, with the staff, and with all of you how we continue to grow those traditions. And that's particularly true, I think, as a parent for me, to see my daughter begin those traditions and to see how they change for her each year in her experience of them. And so I thank you for all of that, and I thank you for your questions as well, and I look forward to more next year in our new tradition.